Good evening. So here we go. The second Bible reading today is from First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine until twenty. So you can find it in front of、uh, the Bible. You can find it in the front. It's in page one thousand one hundred ninety-six to ninety-seven. First Corinthians, chapter six, verse nine. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I, shall I then take, shall, shall I, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that He who unites Himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Oh, good evening, friends.、Um, those of you who have not、uh, realized, we've got this new stage, which means you can see me better. I can see you better, and it means I can see you if you fall asleep. Now, Jono actually gave me that joke. It's not mine, and I thought that's good. I'll use it.、Uh, but I'm sure it won't happen tonight. But as we're thinking about this, this topic of sex. Sorry, is it a bit echoey, or it's just me? Okay.、Um, what we'll also be doing at the end of the service is that there will be question time. So there will be a phone number that pops on the screen. So message your questions through during the service. And hopefully by the end we'll have time for a few of those.、Uh, but tonight we're looking at this topic, very important topic, very sensitive topic.、Um, so let's ask God for His help. Let's let's turn to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think about sex, You might give us minds that think Your thoughts after Yours. Give us sensitivity as we talk about it. Give us grace as we even reflect on our own broken lives. And we pray, Heavenly Father, in the Gospel we will find healing, but also in your Scriptures you will teach us how we are meant to think about sex. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, how are we Christians meant to think about sex? What is its proper place? 
What are its right purposes? You see, there's so much confusion, not only out there in the world, but also, I suspect, in here in the church when it comes to sex. And so we need, especially at this time in this cultural climate, biblical clarity on this topic. You see, for a large slab of church history, Christians have in fact not been very helpful in teaching about sex. And so, for example, between the 5th and 7th century, it was believed that sexual intercourse was impure, was very impure, that church leaders were not to have sex with their wives before the Holy Communion. They thought it's an impure activity. Don't do it, especially before the Holy Communion. Now, what do we think about that? Well, in a church like ours, it happens once every two months, so it's not too bad. But then it happened often. It's very bad for those men and women, husbands and wives. But what the church also did was they issued an edict like this, forbidding sex. Sex forbidden on Thursday, the day of Christ's arrest. On Fridays, the day of his death. On Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin. And on Sunday, in honor of the departed saints. Wednesday, sometimes made it to the list too. As did 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost. And also feast days and days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. Now, some guy did some calculation, and he worked out, well, that only leaves 44 days in a year for marital sex. Now, for some husbands who get sick and get the man flu for half of those, doesn't leave many days left. But the church, this guy, Peter Lombard, a theologian bishop of Paris in the 12th century, he taught this. The Holy Spirit leaves the room when a married couple has sex, even if they do it without passion. What do you think? Is it that impure? Stay away. Now, if you find these examples just distorted views of sex, I grew up thinking that babies come from the armpits, as I was taught as an innocent six-year-old boy. I mean, we don't teach our kids this, but I was taught that, and I believed it for a while until Esther was born, and it was no armpit. <laughs> but today our world has, in a sense, gone the other way, where it's become so sex-obsessed. It's used to sell anything and everything from shampoo to deodorant to jeans to cars. It's become like a basic human need that you need to have sex. Everyone must experience it casually and frequently, moving on from partner to partner so that you can find sexual satisfaction and discover yourself, whatever that means. You see, in our society, it's valued so highly. But yet at the same time, do you see the irony? It's cheapened and emptied of its meaning. And so sex is confusing. It's one of those things where, from a Christian perspective, I don't think there's any other activity where one day it is immoral, it is bad, don't do it, but then on the next day when you are married, it is good and pure and go for it. I don't think there's any other activity that changes like that. That's why it's so confusing. And so sex, how are we meant to think about this topic as Christians? Now at this point, I do want to acknowledge it is a sensitive topic. 
many of us suspect might have pasts that we regret, hurts that we continue to bear, and I suspect there may be even some here who have been sexually abused. Now, I do want to say this. It is a sensitive topic, but I do want to say to those of you who have been sexually abused, it is not your fault. It is wrong. It is never right. It is not your fault. But you can come to the gospel where there is healing. We'll think a bit more about that. There is cleansing in the gospel, and there is the Father who loves you unconditionally still. And so as we think about sex and hear what the Bible teaches about sex, those of you who have had bad experiences, you might find this very difficult to accept. Very difficult to accept. But yet, this is what God says. So we want to understand what God teaches about sex because it's been distorted so much by this world. And so firstly, what we need to understand about sex is that God is for sex. God is not anti-sex. God is not repressive about sex. I mean, God didn't create Adam and Eve, left them in the garden, and then upon his return, discover Adam and Eve. What do you think you guys are doing? Where do you learn to do such a thing? Of course not. Of course not. You see, God is for sex because God designed sex. God created sex. God invented sex. In fact, God knows more about sex than any one of us. And God designed it as something between one man and one woman. It is something that biologically, physiologically, anatomically matches and complement like two pieces of the puzzle that just matches perfectly, complements perfectly, natural by design and purpose. And so what that says is that any form of sexual activity apart from God's good design is something the human body is just not designed for. The human body is not designed for any other form or type of sex apart from God's good design of one man and one woman. Now, we know this medically. There are far higher health risks with those who engage in homosexual lifestyle. Far higher. Life expectancy is shorter by about 20 years. Had a chat with a doctor. I was given information. The sexual health screening needed for those who live the homosexual lifestyle is far bigger than those who don't. But despite how it's been distorted, God is for sex. He is for sex in the way he has designed sex as being between one man and one woman. And God is for sex because he made it good. I mean, just imagine the joy of Adam when he saw Eve, naked, without shame, without concern, without embarrassment, two becoming one flesh so beautifully and intimately. It is good by God's good design and purpose. And that's why I, I wanted that Song of Songs passage read as our first reading. It's to show us and to teach us that God made it good and pleasurable, to show that God wanted to be good and pleasurable. In that passage, we see the attractiveness, the beauty, the desire, the delight of sex. It's something that the Bible affirms as good, as God's good gift to humanity. In fact, God has so intentionally designed male and female anatomy, you know, this biology 101, so that sex is pleasurable and delightful. 
Now, you might not be thinking that after that reading from Song of Songs. I mean, just try to picture what was read out there. A navel as big as a rounded goblet that leaks wine. A waist like a sack of wheat. Breasts like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, then turned into clusters of fruit. I mean, that looks like to me some freaky alien. (laughs) Something out of a horror movie. No one wants to see that at night. But of course, it's poetic language, right? It's poetic language that celebrates erotic sexual love, where the man and a woman are intoxicated with each other, admiring and desiring each other's body. It is a good thing. It's in the Bible. God made it good by design. Now, that was, was of course, not what I grew up knowing about sex. Grew up in a conservative Chinese family, never talked about these things. Uh, I mean, I was taught that babies come from armpits. But I still remember it wasn't, in fact, till year eight in sex education at school that I discovered that the number of children a family has does not equate exactly with the number of times the parents had had sex. That's what I believe. You have sex once, there's one baby, you have sex twice, there's two babies, and that's it. It was a shock to my system that people would do it uh, and not for children. That was a big shock to me. But you see, in the Bible, it is clear. God is for sex because God designed it and made it good. And so that's our first one. God is for sex. But though God is for sex, God is not for all use of sex. Because sex in God's design was designed only to be for marriage. God is for sex, but not all forms and types of sex. Only the sex that is for marriage. Now what this means is that good and right sex in God's good design is marital sex between a husband and wife. Only within a marriage is it okay. And God has designed it this way, not because he's a killjoy, but he understands the nature and power and the purpose that it serves in marriage for which he designed it. I mean, you can't argue against God. He designed sex, not us. And so safe sex is not about using the right contraception. Safe sex is marital sex. Only there is it good and right. But what this also means is that all other forms and types of sexual activity before marriage, outside of marriage, is bad and wrong sex. Now, in our second reading from 1 Corinthians, it speaks of sexual immorality. The word there is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. It's a catch-all term to cover all forms of sexual activity and sexual arousal outside of marriage. All of it, all, all under that banner. And so it's not just wrong at the point of intercourse. It's wrong way before that, be it verbal or visual or virtual or physical. You see, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he puts it as plainly as possible. There are eternal consequences for sexual morality. Now, the world, we, we don't take this so seriously, but in Paul's eyes, in God's eyes, this is serious stuff. There are eternal consequences. You have no part in the kingdom of God. Have a look at our reading there from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, it is that serious. And so casual sex, one-night stands, fooling around while dating, is not just a human preference, certainly not a right. It is not just bad as well, but it is in God's eyes morally wrong. It is morally wrong. You see, for the Christian, Paul goes on to say, it is defiling, it is impure. You who are Christian, you're joined with Christ, but yet for you to join with another, that is not on. So Paul goes on to say, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Or you, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, how can you do such a thing to your own body that Christ has redeemed? And that's what Paul goes on to say, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So you see, sexual morality is serious in the Bible. It is defiling, but it is also considered self-abuse. You see, a lot of our sins, stealing, hating, they're sins that are external, that they affect those outside. But sexual sins is to sin against yourself. It hurts yourself at your very core. And so those who have experience and do know of this, it is the sad reality that we carry scars, internal scars and pain and hurt. It is a sin against ourself. And so Paul goes on to say, verse 18, All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now, again, at this point, I do want to repeat what I said at the beginning. Those of you who have experienced the hurt and pain of being abused, it is never right. It's not your fault. But hear that God always loves you. There is the gospel where there is healing. But here, what this teaches us is that if you are not ready for lifelong, faithful, covenantal marriage, then you're not ready for sex. If you're not ready to give your life to someone in marriage for life until you die, then you're not ready to give your body to someone in sex. And that's why in Song of Songs, the last verse we read, we read this, Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. See, don't play with love. Don't play with fire. Because once it's ignited, it wants to go somewhere, but it can't until marriage. And so it's clear here, sex, in any of its form, outside of marriage, becomes powerfully destructive. And that's why it's not just bad sex, it is wrong sex. But then what this also means is that sex is a marital need. It is not a personal, individual need. You see, our society teaches us that we all need to have sex to survive. It's like eating and drinking. I mean, if anyone ends up like the 40-year-old virgin, that, that's to be laughed at, that somehow that person is subhuman. But of course, that's not what the Bible teaches. Sex is not a personal need like eating and drinking. If I don't eat and drink for a few days, I'll die. But if I don't have sex, I'm not going to explode and die from that. It is not a personal need. What it is, is it is a marital need. The marriage needs it to survive 
not the individual. Now, this is not to deny that everyone, or at least most people, have sexual desire. But you see, sexual desire is not a sexual need. There's a distinction there worth knowing. A need must be satisfied, otherwise you die, like eating and drinking and breathing. But a desire can be controlled. Do you notice that difference? You see, I desire all sorts of things. I desire to eat ice cream for all meals of the day, but I don't need to do that. Uh, I, I, in fact, I just need to be self-controlled about that. I don't need to eat ice cream to survive. In fact, if I do give in to my desire, it is unhealthy. And so you see, there is a marital need for sex, not a personal individual need for sex. It's a subtle distinction, but there is a distinction. You see, if God, in his good design, said that it was a personal need for sex, then that would justify sex outside of marriage. Or that would mean that everyone must get married. But that's not the case in God's good design. It is the marriage that needs sex, not individuals. Marriage needs it to keep the marriage together, to cement the relationship. It is like the divine superglue given to enable lifelong, faithful, steadfast love. That's why sex is a marital need. In fact, because sex is a marital need, it is also a marital command. Now, if you need commanding as married people to have sex, well, it's commanded in the Bible. Now, we've done marriage counselling quite a few times, Yvonne and myself with some couples. Never once they need a commanding about having sex once they get married. But if you do, here it is. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband should fulfill his marital duty, or that is his obligation or debt, to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. You see, married people have an obligation to give sex to the other. Your body is no longer yours once you make those vows. You've vowed your body to your spouse, and you have committed yourself to love sexually your spouse for life. And that is good for the marriage. That's why it is commanded. And so for those who are married then, if there is no sex in the marriage, then pastorally it needs to be resolved. There is something underlying that perhaps. If there is no sex in a marriage, there is something wrong. But here in summary, God is for sex, but sex is for marriage. But then what is marriage for? Well, marriage is for many things. Now, remember when we looked at the talk on marriage, we saw how there are four purposes to marriage. Remember that? For each other, for sexual expression, for children, and for society. And all of those together are, in fact, in the service of God. Now, what we find, this is just God's brilliance, God's wisdom, his wonderful design. What we find is that sex serves each of those purposes in marriage. It's all connected. Sex is the servant of the marriage relationship for those marital purposes, which means marriage and sex itself is in the service of God in marriage. And so what do we learn here? Well, for each other. Marriage is for each other. 
and sex serves that purpose of binding and uniting the two together. Now this is why in the Old Testament there's a Hebrew word. It's a word to know someone. And often that word to know someone is a metaphor to have sex with someone. Interesting, isn't it? It's just a normal knowing word, I know you, but often it's used as a metaphor to have sex with someone. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, this is in the ESV, which is a bit more literal. Now, Adam knew his wife, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, in the NIV, it's translated, Adam lay with his wife. Now, does that surprise you? Now, what that might suggest is that when someone says to you, a friend says to you, I want to know you, just be a bit concerned. (laughs) But what this is saying is that sex is really about knowing someone. It is knowing physically, emotionally, intimately, personally, in the most personal way possible. You see, to have sex with someone is to know that person completely. To be completely naked with someone It's not only to become extremely vulnerable, but it is to open up your life to someone else, to be completely exposed before someone else. It is to offer yourself to someone else. It is to intimately be known by someone else. It is why sex creates such a powerful bond in relationship. And so you see this purpose in marriage for each other. Sex serves that, serves that very purpose in marriage. And so what do you think happens when sex is used for each other but outside the context of marriage? Well, you see, to be exposed so vulnerably to someone and bonded so intimately with someone, that is only going to lead to hurt and pain and damage as that divine superglue is sort of torn apart. I mean, have you even just experienced supergluing your fingers together? I've tried that, doing models and all that. You try to pull your fingers apart, it will hurt. Sometimes you lose a piece of skin. It hurts. It's not meant to be torn apart once that glue has set. But what it also does is that it makes the next time you want to bond with someone else just harder. Because there's scarring. And that's the case with those who have multiple sexual partners. They find it harder to maintain a faithful relationship. But what it also does is that to use sex for each other outside the context of marriage is that it cheapens what God has made so special. You see, to have multiple partners in life does not elevate sex. It diminishes its value. It trivializes its importance. It cheapens its significance, such that in the end, men and women are no longer persons to be known and loved, but objects to be used. I mean, if sex is really that special, and in God's eyes it is, you don't share it around. Now, many of you will know that I drive a Toyota. Not a very fancy car, Toyota. I've been driving Toyotas for many years. Now, if you were to ask me if, if you could borrow my car, I wouldn't be too fussed. Just don't crash it. But let's just say out there in the minister's car park was not a Toyota, but a Ferrari. And you want to borrow my Ferrari. 
Now, I'll be a lot more serious and precious about who drives a Ferrari. In fact, I'm not even sure I let Yvonne drive it. I might just let her turn the engine on and then get out of the driver's seat. But you get the point, don't you? If sex is so special and precious, it is reserved, it's meant to be reserved just for marriage, for the one, for life, the one I will intimately know and be united to for life. Now, secondly, we see that marriage is the only proper context for human sexuality, the only place where it can be expressed. And, of course, sex serves that purpose as well. And the great biblical principle for marital sex is that it is the precious gift to give, not a right to claim. A gift to give, not a right to claim. It is... Selfless giving, not selfish taking. That's the principle for human relationship, but that's the principle for sex in marriage. Sex in marriage is the promise that I will fulfill and satisfy my husband or wife emotionally, mentally, physically, and sexually. Now, where do you think we get that principle from? It's to reflect our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ who gave his life for his church. That is to be even reflected in the bedroom. Now, I'm not sure about you, but that should turn our world upside down in the way this world thinks about sex. You see, when sex is demanded, when it becomes a right, that is when abuse happens, and that is not on. That is not on, not just for Christians, it's not on for anyone because it does not match with God's design. It is never right. And it's to miss miss the whole point of the purpose of sex in the first place. And so sex is a gift that is given, not a right that is claimed. In fact, in a study by the National Bureau of Economic Research in the States, 16,000 American adults were surveyed And the results do not match what Hollywood paints for us. What they discovered in that survey was that it is those who are married who have more sex, not the singles who go from partner to partner. Is that surprising? And what they also found in that study was that those most happy with sex are not those who move from partner to partner and have all those wild experiences, but those most happy with sex are those who only have one partner they're one partner for life and i suspect that that is because of this principle it is in the safety and security of covenantal love where there is selfless giving not selfish taking and so for those of you who are married let that be a good reminder as a principle in the bedroom now what do you think happens then when sex is outside of marriage well sex outside of marriage is always sex exposed to danger i mean just think about this i found this extremely profound i read this in a book by christopher ash a pastor and a theologian sex before or outside of marriage becomes something that is not shaped by grace but shaped by performance you see inside marriage Husband and wife, because they're stuck together for life, they've got their life to work things out. Husband and wife at no point need to prove anything 
by successful sex. At no point do they need to prove anything. Whether a married couple do well or do badly at sex, the relationship is not threatened. It is shaped by grace. Even if they do it badly, even if it's difficult, even if it requires years of patience and practice, sex for married couples is shaped by grace. There's no need to prove anything. But then sex outside of marriage, there is something there to prove. It's always under the anxious trial to do well enough, to perform well enough, just in case the other partner decides this is just not satisfying. And so sex outside of marriage, in one sense, is shaped by works. It is shaped by performance. And so what type of sexual life looks better? Under grace, inside marriage with nothing to prove, or under works outside of marriage with everything to prove. You see, there is far greater freedom and joy with sex inside marriage. And so don't believe the lie out there. They're all lies. The lies of Hollywood, they're all lies. One pastor has put it this way. They live, a couple, they live and make love within a sweet covenant of grace. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the marriage relationship? Now, thirdly, what's the third purpose of marriage? Well, the third purpose is for children. And, of course, sex serves that very purpose as well. Sex serves that purpose. I mean, biologically, this is by design. Man and woman are different by design. So that through the joyful, intimate, pleasurable, mysterious expression of marital love in sex, we get children. It's the only natural way. But if you think about this, God could have designed us a different way. God could have designed us human beings in another way. God have designed human beings where we're like the amoebas, you know, those little little bacterial stuff. You know, they just divide and multiply without any need for sex, and so you have babies. God could have made us like that, just divide and multiply. Or God could have designed it where it's just a matter of holding hands and babies come out. God could have done that. But you see, God has designed it this way, designed sex for marriage in the context of safety, of a safe, lifelong, covenantal, faithful relationship where through their expression of love, children come about. You see, that is the best place for children to be brought into the world. It's the best environment for raising children in the safety and stability of a family where there is a father and mother who are committed to each other, not just when it's good, but for life. You see, it is this way that God has designed children to come about. It is good and beautiful by design. But then what do you think happens when sex is used for children outside the context of marriage? Well, since the 60s and the introduction of the pill, it really effectively broke that link between sex and children. And so no accident that after the 60s, promiscuity just increased, divorce rates increased. But all too often we do see babies are born out of wedlock. You know, people say marriage is not necessary for children. It's not necessarily the best place to raise children. 
But that is to be born outside the stability of a permanent monogamous marriage relationship. And who do you think suffers when children are brought in this way? Well, on one level, it's cruel to children, not having a stable family of committed parents. But on another level, often what happens is that it leaves mothers the burden of raising and supporting the child in the absence of a permanent father. Mothers often suffer. Now, of course, people still manage. Even though marriages are broken, families are broken, people still manage. Children are resilient, families adapt. But it was not God's original design that is good for us, for how children are to be brought into this world. And so marriage is for children, and sex serves that very purpose. You see how it all aligns so beautifully in God's wisdom. Now, finally, marriage is for society. It is for the public good, and sex in marriage serves that purpose as well. You see, sex in marriage forms a clear boundary around society, around family units, around marriages, that that is the only sexualized relationship that is okay. It makes it clear there's no confusion. And so you might have good friends and buddies, but they're not meant to be sexualized relationships. Dating is not meant to be sexualized. That will be strange, that will be, in fact, wrong, and it will be damaging. And so what do you think happens when sex is outside of marriage? What happens to society? Well, a trail of adultery, fornication, sexual immorality, that will leave not just broken marriages and divorces and devastated families, but it also leaves a trail of hurt and pain and betrayal and children who suffer long-term effects of not seeing a good role model of marriage and family life. And that often perpetuates into the next generation. And often in, when these things happen, when divorce happens, grandparents are the often forgotten party. They're, they're cut off from their grandchildren. But then more than that, what else does this do to society? Well, which group of people need to fear the contraction of STDs like HIV and AIDS? Is it those who have multiple sexual partners throughout their life? Or is it the married couple who have only ever had each other as sexual partner for life? Who needs to fear those diseases? Well, what do you think? What do you think sex outside of marriage does to society? Well, it breaks down the social fabric of human civilization. Sexual immorality is antisocial and it is profoundly damaging. And so we see here, it's quite clear, isn't it? Marriage is for each other, it is for sexual expression, it is for children, it is for the good of society, and sex serves each of those purposes inside marriage. And so now we come to the end. Hopefully there is clarity to this confusing topic of sex. You see, God is for sex. Sex is for marriage. Marriage is for many things. And sex serves each of those purposes. And this is how we are meant to think about sex as Christians. That is its place. That is its purpose. Outside of which it is always bad and wrong. But I do want to end with these three points by way of implication. Firstly, and that is this. 
don't be deceived. Sex is always seductive, always seems right, always seems good. It's illicit, glamorous, powerful, captivating. Sexual immorality promises all forms of goodness to you, but it will never deliver. It will leave you empty, used, and abused. And so don't ever think that you can sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend and think that it is harmless. It is not. Don't ever think that's okay to try before you buy, that that will make your marriage stronger. It won't. Don't ever think that you can fool around, hook up with someone you don't even know, open yourself, expose yourself without any consequences. There will be. Don't ever think you can engage privately in pornography and think it's not hurting anyone. It is. You see, there will always be consequences for sexual immorality, personally, socially. And so don't be deceived. But second, I want you to hear this. And that is, don't be burdened. Grace is abounding. The sad reality is that many of us would know of the pain and the hurt and the scarring of sexual failure. And perhaps some of us feel desperately guilty about this, weighed down by your past, burdened by your history. And that's why this is so important for you to hear. You see, if you are a Christian, if you have come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have been redeemed, you have been washed, you have been cleansed. And if you have not come, you can come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then what will happen is that there's no more need to feel filthy or dirty despite what you've done or despite what's been done to you. There's no more need to feel that you're beyond saving. You're not. And there's no need to feel how God will use you now. You see, there's no sexual sin that is too big that the cross did not pay for. And there is no sexual sin too filthy that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse. You have to hear that. You have to know that. I mean, I don't know of anything more comforting, especially in sexual sin. I don't know of anything more comforting than to know that the God who knows our heart and sees our past will love us still. Isn't that profound? The God who knows our heart sees our past but loves us still. I mean, it is grace that always needs to shape how we approach Christ. Not on performance, but on grace. And it is grace that needs to shape our relationship and our fellowship, a community of grace, sinners saved and cleansed. And so secondly, remember this. Don't be burdened if you feel burdened. Don't be burdened. Grace is abounding. And finally, don't be fooled. God's way is always best for me. In the end, it will come down to this. Will I just trust God? I know what the Bible says about sex and marriage. I know what God teaches me. Will I just trust God, though I might envy my non-Christian friends and their sexual freedom, though it seems fun and right to enjoy sex before marriage, though it seems harmless to sleep around, though it might even mean I might never experience sex in life if I remain single. Will I trust God in that? To keep my single bed pure? 
to keep my marriage bed pure. You see, you'll never regret what you don't do sexually. So will I trust that God's way is always best for me? And so let me end there. Don't be deceived. But if you are burdened, don't be burdened. Come to Jesus and finally don't be fooled. God's ways is always best. Well, there's a lot to process there. Let's, let's pray to God for his help.